Welcome to Bancroft's Broadcasts, the school podcast where we talk to staff, parents and pupils to find out more about the school and its community. This is the place to keep up to date and in touch with our school. So let's get into this episode of Bancroft's Broadcasts. Richard Hay is TRIPS coordinator for Bancroft School. So when it comes to learning experiences outside the school, be that a theatre trip to London or a technology exploration in Japan, it's Rich who has the task of making it all happen. We're meeting Rich to ask him more about the trips available at Bancroft's, why they're important and what parents and children need to know. Hello there, Rich. Hello. Pleased to meet you, Rich. I am looking forward to you chatting to us a little bit today about your particular area of speciality within the Bancroft's community. Tell us a little more about your very special role at Bancroft's. That's a very nice way of putting it. I'm, I'm essentially uh, in charge of our trips program. So ranging all the way through from little day trips down the road through to, you know, two week journeys to the Southern Hemisphere and everything in between. So uh, that's pretty much my remit, really. So I'm... That's what you do. Yeah, that's what I do. I'm involved in the planning of the schedule and the sort of cycle of them, deciding which year groups should be doing what when and looking at what destinations make sense looking at sort of the bang for your buck in terms of value for money all of those sorts of things um so that's me and it really is the whole gamut yeah anything from a trip to a museum that's not far away through to something to a different continent yeah so um that's not to say that i am planning each and every one of them lots of members of staff are are doing their own thing on these uh but because i'm our EVC, so uh, Events and Visits Coordinator, that means that everything comes through me. Uh, I'm in charge of checking all the risk assessments and making sure that the trip, you know, seems to be a a sensible proposition and something that we want to support. And then, yeah, I'm there to, to help people through the process in terms of the planning of it, the booking of it if it's not one that I'm doing completely bespoke myself. Brilliant. I'm pleased we're talking to you because I think as soon as you've outlined there the the topic we're we're discussing, I think most of us can recognise and remember and and, and respect the whole value of of, of school trips and all the excitement and fun and education that they bring. At the same time, I'd imagine there's a lot of parents who find the prospect of trips uh, a little bit scary. Their children going off on adventures without them, um, it's it can be a daunting idea for some, I suppose. Yeah, it can. I think there's there's lots of different facets to that. So even just ranging th- from, you know, will they be homesick? Will they have a nice time if, you know, certain friends aren't with them or if they're away from family and routine and all of that, all the way through to, well, actually, is this safe? Uh, you're talking about whitewater rafting. Is, is that okay? Uh, you know, you're talking about a homestay. How do we know that these families my child is going to go and stay with are going to look after them. Uh, all those sorts of entirely valid questions I'm in charge of giving answers to. There's a lot to explore here. Uh, maybe before we get into some of those specifics, give us a little bit more detail, if you can, Richard, about the sort of breadth there. You've mentioned there you said whitewater rafting, you said a homestay. Can you put a little bit more meat on the bones of the sort of variety of trips we're talking about more specifically? Well, let's 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 look at the next year. Uh, we have got this summer, we've got 60 kids coming with me on a hockey tour to Argentina. At the same time, there'll be 30 odd Bancroftians on a technology trip uh, to Japan. 
in the autumn, there's a music tour to Madrid, there's a cultural trip to Venice, there'll be a Spanish language trip as well. Um, then looking at next year, uh, the big ticket item, there's two back-to-back school trips out to Peru. Wow. Um, sort of continuing the work that we did out there in 2018. And amongst all that, there's the whole program of, of language trips, uh, of French, Spanish, and German. Uh, the history department does their battlefields trip every year. There's there's a lot there's a lot going on, yeah. And and all these trips, all these brilliant opportunities that that you're mentioning to us there, are these the ideas of the particular department teachers who come up with an idea and come to you with it, or do you generate these ideas? Where does it all come from? It's a real mixture. So some departments uh, have had a a cycle and a routine in place as it were for for decades and that works well for them and they go right we always do this trip for these years and then when they're in the fifth form they'll have xyz opportunities and is that like the the, the language exchanges that sort of thing yeah that sort of that sort of thing uh talks about the history department doing battlefields that's obviously been going on a long time uh within geography all their sort of field trips so the compulsory parts of the the curriculum, they're, mm. they're quite consistent. But then uh, if departments want to do something a little bit more left field, so for example, this will be, I, I mentioned the technology trip to Japan, that'll certainly mm. be new for them. And history are looking at um, spending some time in, in the Deep South to look at the American Civil War and understanding of that, some time in, uh, I think it was in Tennessee that they are looking at going to, but I may have got wow. that wrong. That's just off the top of my head. So that sort of thing, they may have an idea and then come to me and Mrs. Burnside is the assistant head co-curricular and say, is this something viable? Is this something that we should be taking seriously and, and looking further at or, or you know, shall we, shall we knock this on the head early? Are all the trips tied to something curricular? You've mentioned quite a few things there that sound like an excellent way of expanding the sort of learning that goes on in the classroom. Do they all tie into something within the, the, the curriculum they all tie into something educational they don't necessarily tie into the curriculum um so there are there are departments that will run trips as i've as i've spoken about but we also have ones that sort of function outside of that remit so this as i say next year will be a return to peru where we sort of did a, a charities and an outreach trip in 2018 working very closely with a, with a charity that i know well out there we've done something similar in costa rica there have in the past been diving trips um as well as sort of the more conventional trips that come with with team sports there's been open water swimming so i think i think and all of them there's there's always a sense that you, know, you want people to learn from them and, 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 and be educated in some way, shape or form and for right. it to be a formative experience. But it's not always the case that they will be sort of intrinsically linked to the curriculum. And, and often if they're not, that actually it means that they are more open and accessible in a way that those opportunities are shared wider throughout the sort of school community instead of it being specifically you know unless you study this subject you don't have this opportunity i see what you mean so for some of them there's that very obvious educational link you're you're learning spanish this is a chance to go to to spain and practice your skills you're you're, you're learning history let's go and explore some some significant locations but other times the the educational part of it is is broader and less specific yeah and can can be holistic as opposed to something specifically curriculum 
or, or academia based, it can give sure. people an opportunity to sort of, you know, without being too cliched and talking about finding oneself, uh, there is definitely scope for people to, to learn a little bit more about themselves when they get out of their comfort zone. Well, let's look at that because this is an important point, isn't it? What skills are actually um, up for grabs here? What experiences what learnings? This is quite a lot of effort and hassle for you. There's quite an undertaking involved in in your role, moving all these hundreds of children <laughs> from Bancroft around around the place. What do they get out of it? Why is a school trip so important? Why is the experience of going somewhere, be that to a, a museum in London or, or, or to or, or to somewhere in Peru? What, what are the actual ways in which this does build into a, a learning experience for young people? I think there are so many um, in no particular order. I think the, the opportunity to see people in different circumstances and surroundings from those in which you might normally associate them, be that, you know, your peers, people in other year groups or members of staff, the opportunity to sort of interact with all those people in a situation that may be much more informal and chilled it may be much more intense and high octane and um, they're sort of you know all vary greatly from trip to trip well that's interesting so before you even get onto the location or the topic of the trip just being in that different environment around the teachers and the fellow pupils with whom you usually spend your classroom time that experience in itself you're saying has has some value i think it certainly can do you can certainly get to know people in a way that you either wouldn't at school or wouldn't have the opportunity to or you perhaps you know we all make judgments I think quite quite early on in terms of meeting people and impressions being formed mm. and if if you're kind of stuck within the constraints of you know whatever the, the school day-to-day -day may be those classes those settings those teams um, I, I guess there's fewer opportunities for those to be chipped away at but with everyone sort of starting afresh in a way on a trip I think there's definitely an, an element of that I also think yeah I spoke a little bit about learning about oneself and just seeing how you respond and adapt to different cultures different languages different customs different food different weather even all sorts uh the the sort of just being out of one's comfort zone but still in a you know safe and controlled environment i think is is a really big thing and then yeah in terms of specific skills that will depend a little bit on the trip um mm. you know i'm quite excited to see this summer how our hockey players uh, adapt to um you know very different conditions very different style of play uh very different culture out in argentina i taught languages at bancross for six years so i was very involved in in the language trips and seeing like people often think about about those trips and go well you know realistically how much better can your french or your spanish really get in five days say and that's completely missing the point that actually it's about instilling love of the language or the culture or the food or the region or whatever it may be that then inspires someone to take that a bit more seriously and work a bit harder at it so you used to be a language teacher yeah so i'm assuming you've been on a fair few i have <laughs> lang language exchanges and so you've witnessed firsthand that phenomenon, yeah, that 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 confidence building. Well, I think I think even like if you'll indulge the narcissism very briefly, I think that was true of me as a child. I remember so clearly going on a on a Spanish trip to Seville when I was fourteen, and coming back and just like being completely besotted with Spain and the culture and the language and everything. And my Spanish went from 
presumably pretty rubbish at that stage to pretty good quite quickly because it was something that became really important to me because you know I sort of had a taste of what that was and what it could be and decided I wanted more of it um if I'm not saying that if I hadn't gone then I wouldn't have continued with the language but who knows whether that's something that I would have really prioritized something that I'd want to study at universities and that I'd end up teaching I think I think that certainly had a had a big impact and I don't that's what I'm trying to say in terms of like the language acquisition and those skills I think it's more a a long-term mm. sort of response to the trip as opposed to you know you leave on course for a six at a GCSE and you know four days later you come back right. on course for a nine it doesn't sure. work like that it's it's more to do with like the changes that it can provoke yeah. in a student in that sense. Now, I imagine, and I'm thinking here about language trips, but also, I suppose, about, about all the adventures more broadly. I'm imagining some children are chomping at the bit, raring to go, absolutely dying to get on this adventure and go and explore and learn. I'm imagining some other children might be maybe a little more nervous or, or, or not quite so sure about it or find the prospect a little daunting is that a thing that, that exists is that variety of, of of feelings there within the children absolutely yeah you've hit the nail on the head you do get people who are desperate and you know raring to go um and at the other extreme you get i i see not infrequently parents sign their kid up for a trip that they really really want them to go on because they think it would be great for them and then they come back to me and they say, actually, having chatted with so and so, they're not they're not entirely sold on the idea. They're not completely comfortable. You know, is it too late mm. to change our mind? And that's really sad to see because it's, in my opinion, it's exactly those um, those sorts of pupils and those scenarios that that would get the most benefit, I think, out of out of going and realizing that you know they're not. And not something that need to be scary or daunting. They're all, you know, well planned, well uh, thought out. Uh, the itineraries will typically have a little bit of something for for everyone, um, and it's just about sort of taking those first steps. I think to to push yourself into something a little bit new. So when you're navigating those conversations, are these the sort of points you find yourselves discussing with the with the children who maybe aren't quite so sure? Is this trip going to be right for me? Um, you, you find yourself encouraging them along those sort of lines? I don't find myself doing that on a day-to-day -day basis because I'm in apartment and anything else. Since I have stopped teaching and started this role, um, my interaction with with Bancroftians themselves is uh, much less than it used to be. I'm sort of typically dealing with with staff and with parents much more. I think those conversations that you're referring to are probably happening quite a lot between parents and, and their children and they're probably happening between like the the subject leaders and the and the trip leaders and people who might come to them about it. If it's a trip that I'm both sort of facilitating and organizing, then then yeah, I'll I'll get the odd Teams message or email saying not necessarily saying as openly as I'm unsure about this, but there'll be some some tentative questions that we can sort of look at in terms of uh, yeah, calming some fears. What are the questions you find yourself most frequently answering, be they from teachers or from parents or from pupils? It's changed actually quite quite recently. There is a big, I don't want to say trend, that's not the right word, but but there is more and more, there's more of a feeling at the moment that, 
traveling with friends is is vital and that that's you know an essential part of it and i completely i completely get that like i understand why if you know if people were given the option of would you like to go with some people with whom you're very comfortable or would you like to be potentially you know the only one in your year group going it's quite a clear option why people are going to take that i think the reason that it's coming up much more these days is just as a result of much more transparency about it i think you know the old system before things moved online, before things became streamlined a little bit, was sort of, you know, you remember the days of permission slips being torn off and then crumpled at the bottom of school bags and taken in and all of that. It was it was much yeah. less, oh, are you going? Are you going? Who's going? Oh, we want them all to go together. So there's, I think there is a slight reticence, maybe not reticence, but there's, there is a feeling at the moment that... Um, you know, it's it's absolutely essential for specific existing friendship groups to travel together, right, and, and I think right. that's you know presumably because of that sort of comfort blanket sense of things. Um, but it it does potentially negate some of the advantages that we were talking about in terms of seeing people in a new light. And the tricky conversation that I quite often have to have is saying. I understand why that is preferable, but it's not always possible because if a trip is oversubscribed, you know, one way or another, we we need to look at how this is trimmed in the fairest way possible. Mm. And, you know, ballots and the like can't really take into account friendship groups or existing ties. So what would your advice be to maybe parents who are trying to navigate that anxiety and, and that point um, about sticking with friendship groups um, quite firmly? What would your advice be to parents who are trying to have that discussion? I think there are two things that I would say. I would, I would probably initially advise either reading the sort of the launch letter or, or seeking more information to ascertain like whether there is a size limit on this trip. Like if, if it is something specific, for example, um, we've got a Spanish trip going to Salamanca and we work with a very good school there and they have an excellent system in terms of pairing us with families for the homestay who are all fully checked and ratified and all of that. And they said, right, we've got room for 24 students. That, that's what we can do. So there we go. That's, that's a fairly firm limit on, on the numbers we can take. There are 24. Um, and we, we sort of had to say, this is likely to be popular and oversubscribed. Please, please be aware that we can only take 24, then they need to be a ballot, et cetera, et cetera. So in, in scenarios like that, I think that's where you, there needs to be a little bit of realization that, that manufacturing sort of the, the, the traveling group probably isn't going to be possible because, because people are going to be disappointed anyway. On trips that have a much sort of more generous allowance, shall we say, they have you know, more spaces that can be filled or indeed there isn't an upper limit. It's sort of up to looking at what you can sensibly negotiate in terms of a group rate with airlines. Can everyone fit on one coach? Is there going to be room at the accommodation? Mm. But, you know, they're much more malleable parameters. On, on trips right. like that then it's it's absolutely a realistic expectation to say, uh, right, you know, so-and-so is going to sign up and so are their three best friends and they will all have a lovely time as a four. That's that's something where we can, you know, quite quite concretely facilitate that. Right. It does depend on the nature of the trip then as to how uh, numbers may be quite limited because of those circumstances or more flexible, um, the more the merrier. 
Yeah, absolutely. Now, obviously, you've mentioned some of the, you mentioned the, the big ticket trips that sound very, very exciting to places such as Peru, Japan. Tell us a little about the ones which are closer to home. What sort of things on offer there? Uh, there's all sorts. There's hundreds of, of theatre trips into London, taking advantage of mm-hmm. you know, Central Line being on our doorstep and, and, and that. Duke of Edinburgh uh, is exclusively within the British Isles, so is uh, CCF, so I know that they... So that's doing sort of adventurous hiking, camping trips, that sort of thing? Yeah, and seeing some of the most most beautiful parts of the country as well. Um, they spend time in the Peak District, in um, Brecon Beacons, in Snowdonia. Fantastic. CCF does its adventurous training in the Lake District. Um, mm-hmm. So there's there's lots of sort of quaint English countryside on offer. Um, Wonderful. I put together a trip for the classics department recently up to Hadrian's Wall, seeing a bit of the a bit of the Tyne Valley in, in Newcastle, um, mm-hmm. as well as as well as the the Roman sites along the wall. There are yeah, geography field trips to there are some that only go to Epping Forest, but they're down in South Wales on the beach, I think leaving tomorrow morning. Um, oh fabulous. Yeah, nice so weather for it. Yeah, exactly. So there's, That's yeah, there's great. a lot, there's a lot going on in the UK. Um, our our under twelve girls have a netball trip every year to Bath. Uh, the boys also go to Wales to play some rugby. We, we okay. try and make the most of of what's on our doorstep as well. Let me ask you a slightly tricky question, if I can, Rich. Obviously, all these opportunities sound fabulous, but we all know there is a cost. Um, involved with, with with so many of these things yeah and for some people in various circumstances those expenses might be uh, tricky to come by or, or tricky to accommodate what goes into those tricky conversations about the pricing um that, that there's attached to a school trip so the first thing i would say before i before i get to the tricky question the first thing i would say i i make sure that i well, i try and make sure that i put in every letter that goes out a little paragraph about the obedf the old bancroftian educational development fund who do amazing work with extraordinary generosity, essentially. It's it's a fund that um, sort of dedicates itself to trying to provide opportunities for pupils and former pupils of the school to take part in any sort of educational pursuit for which funding might otherwise be an issue. Right. There is there there exists a fund that is you know, willing and prepared to help where it can um, make up shortfalls. They will very rarely contribute the full price of a trip. They will normally expect some sort of contribution either from the parents or from from the child. But they have for decades now um, done a lot of work in terms of helping people for whom these opportunities might be financially out of reach. So um, that's good to know. Yeah, I it, I would I would love all parents to to know that and think of that before deciding that something is is inaccessible. But coming to your question, there are there are several factors that will typically mean a school trip has to be a little bit more expensive than you know what that itinerary would look like were it not a school trip. Now, part of that, and well, actually a big part of that, is being at the mercy of airlines with large group bookings, and particularly since COVID. The, the feeling in the industry is that airlines are perhaps looking to recoup some of the costs, that some of their losses in, in a manner that is slightly more aggressive than previously. So airfares are high and they will always, always, always be a lot higher than what you see on Skyscanner or Kayak or whatever because they're individual fares 
And airlines are one of the very few industries in the world whereby buying en masse gets you a much worse price as opposed to a much better price. And it doesn't make a lot of sense initially. And then you think about why that is. And there's things like, you know, that the concept of always overbooking a flight, knowing that some people won't turn up and therefore being able to double sell those seats. Well, you can't turn people away if they're part of a group booking. Those seats are protected. You know, all 50 of you are, are on the plane and your rights are enshrined and, and that won't change. Sure. So therefore that privilege comes with a premium. And the reason we have to do that as a school, as opposed to, um, you know, buying 50 individual seats is because what if we get to the airport and then three of our pupils are bumped and all of a sudden that duty of care that we have is is extraordinarily difficult to maintain if if some people are due to be flying all over the world and some people are left stranded yeah. at Heathrow and all of that like you just you can't even entertain that idea so that assurance that absolutely everything has been taken care of those parents those pupils have got complete assurance that because of the arrangements you've made with the airlines with the yeah. other travel providers um, everything's going to be very, very predictable uh, and absolutely assured. Exactly. But but it, it typically means, you know, if you're looking, let's say you're looking at a flight from here to Paris, you might look on Skyscanner and it will be £100, let's say. And you go, fantastic, we can fly for £100. But if you want 40 people to fly to Paris on the same flight with baggage, you're actually looking at somewhere between 200 and 250 pounds. Uh, it's yes. that it's that bigger jump. I see, and that's a that's an important factor that goes into that final price uh, that, that that comes to the uh, comes to the school trip. It is, yeah. Then there's there's other things like you know needing to ensure that everything is abter and atoll protected. So the public liability insurance is in place. You've got to make sure that you have a, a sufficient staff to pupil mm-hmm. ratio. So it's it's not just about you know taking a taking a cost and dividing it by twenty because you're you're going to need three members of staff there for that as well. How do the teachers decide who gets to go on each particular trip? Uh, that's a good question, and it it varies a little bit. It, we we're keen to allow the trip organizer to have some autonomy in that because I think it's really important to remember as well that no teacher is paid for school trips they're paid to teach lessons and work very hard during term time and then they Mm. get holidays and a lot of our staff very generously give up holidays to facilitate school trips and you know that that is out of the goodness of their heart essentially there is no remuneration or anything for that so i do think it's important that um if someone is prepared to put in that that time and effort into planning a trip that they have a team around them that they know and trust and communicate and get on well with there is typically some some autonomy and some choice with uh, with the trip leader but then it's my responsibility as well to look at that and go okay do we have you know enough experience within that staff body do we have sort of the right blend of characters um if it's a mixed gender trip we always must have mixed mm-hmm. gender staffing so there are there are a few things to to look at with that sure. um but but typically it it comes down to the levels of staff willingness and sort of generosity Fantastic. of time and here's another awkward question for you. The, the adventures you've described and the trips you've told us about sound fantastic, but someone listening to this might sound, gosh, here we are trying to all do something about uh, about our carbon footprint. Um, um, what about all these trips flying off to, to here, there and everywhere? What's the approach that Bancroft takes in terms of considering that side 
of, of the trip, that part of the, the impact that these trips have? The first thing I would say is that there is a huge amount of thought that has gone into it. It's not something that we're sort of stumbling into and going, oh, yeah, uh, carbon, we should probably have a think about that. It's um, It has been at the forefront of many a, a planning meeting and discussion. Uh, and we're trying very hard to strike a balance between taking the green option where we can and where that's sensible and where it is, you know, the right thing to do, but also not dictating too much in terms of what opportunities people can and can't have, particularly having lost out on on lots of opportunities, memories, whatever, during COVID. So I think, you know, on the one hand, you could look at it and you go, right, we're we're not going to fly as a school. We're we're only going to get the bus or the train, and and that's what we're going to do, and that's how we're going to address this. And sounds appealing from a green point of view, but then you think about it and you go, okay, that's actually quite a lot of valuable learning opportunities that that therefore wouldn't mm. exist. And and also, it's again, a, it's an awkward point to make, but you, there's a need to balance the environmental aspect of it and the financial aspect of it and yes yes we could when we're going to madrid in october we could spend 16 hours traveling by train but that's 16 hours traveling by train and it's at vast expense as opposed to two hours flying so between you and the teachers you and the the teachers are trying to juggle those three different priorities then they're trying to juggle the actual learning objectives and the the experience you're creating for those children you're trying to juggle the the expense of it, the the actual bottom line as to how much that experience will cost. And then there's this environmental aspect alongside that. So you're making the best decisions you can along all those three points. That's right. It, it sounds like a bit of a cop-out politician answer. So I'll no, try it, and give a little bit a more, more detail. No, but but you know, we are we are making decisions with with uh with a sort of green focus in mind. So we're going on a cricket tour to the Netherlands next year and we'll be meeting at Walthamstow Central, going down to St Pancras and going on the mm-hmm. Eurostar. That's the plan. Like we've looked at that and we've gone, it makes perfect sense here to to take that option. That feels like the right thing to do. There is no need for us to fly. Uh similarly the Paris trip um has gone by coach because that you, you don't you don't need to fly there. Now, the, the counter argument would be, yeah, but there's also no need to be going on a hockey tour to Argentina when there's great hockey played in Belgium, Netherlands, Spain, France. And there's no need to be going to Peru to do some charity work when, you know, you could be doing that in East London. And, and both those points are true. But I think there's also a lot to be said for learning a little bit about the countries that are likely to be the most affected and understanding, you know, there are very few places where you're going to be able to get a better feel for the impacts of deforestation and globalization and climate change, for example, than, than those two countries that I've just mentioned. So, Right. So you're making the best decision uh, you can for each particular trip, trying to weigh up those various different factors. I'm trying to, and I'm not for a moment claiming that we're always <laughs> going to get it right, but it is something that's very much on our radar. It sounds like the the, the breadth of different tasks and considerations that you have to bring together to make all these trips happen, Rich. It sounds like you've got quite a task on your hands. It sounds like it keeps you busy. Yeah, I think that's probably probably fair to say. Thank you for this. Thank you for, for sharing with us a little bit more insight into what goes on, that those trips where students may turn up, jump on a bus, go and have fun somewhere, they don't just happen by accident. It takes a lot of hard work 
from yourself, from uh, your colleagues as well, the, the teachers involved, to really make sure these happen uh, as, uh, as as enjoyably and as reliably and as safely as they possibly can. Yeah, I think I think that's right. Um, and although it is a lot of work, it is ninety nine percent of the time enjoyable work to do. Uh, something that I, you know, genuinely feel makes a very, can make a very positive impact uh, on a child's time at school. And if it's something that we can you know, try and optimize and, and perfect as much as we can, then that's a challenge that I'm up for. I think it is important when we've um, interviewed various students at the school, um, particularly students coming towards their end of their time at Bancroft. So we've asked them, what have been your best times? Where, when have you had the most fun? What will you remember? It's, uh, it's not unusual for them to bring up trips and adventures. And as you said, hockey trips, various different adventures they've had going off to different places. So I, I think you're absolutely right. The hard work that you put in um, organising these trips, it does pay off and it does give children memories they will take with them. Wow, that's very kind of you. Thank you so much. That's been a really interesting and insightful, and I think in a lot of ways reassuring insight into into what goes on behind the the trips that you organise. Thanks so much for joining us. Absolute pleasure. Thank you. That was Richard Hay, Trips Coordinator at Bancrofts. Rich gave us an exciting overview of the many trips on offer. He explained some of the learning benefits of adventures like this, He told us some of the considerations he deals with in the planning stages and he gave us an insight into some of the help that's available to ensure as many pupils as possible get a taste of these really rewarding experiences.